episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show with another really fascinating guest uh, helping to create a better tomorrow on many different fronts. <clears throat> Today, we are going to be continuing, uh, as I referred to, our virtual road trip uh, headed to uh, Rabat, Morocco, uh, by way of Islamabad, Pakistan, uh, and meeting up uh, with Professor Dr. Rahil Kumar, who has a fascinating background. He wears multiple hats. Uh, first of all, uh, Professor Kumar is a tenured professor of biochemistry and molecular biology and the former rector uh, at the Commission on Science and Technology for Sustainable Development in the South, or COMSAT University in Islamabad, an international organization aiming to reduce the, the gap between a developed and developing world through useful applications of science and technology. Uh, professor Kumar is also uh, the current head of the Director of Science and Technology of the Islamic World Education Scientific and Cultural Organization, or ICESCO, a international nonprofit organization emanating from the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, specializing in the fields of education, science, and culture. Uh, and the Director of Science and Technology focuses on overcoming challenges of the Islamic world, promoting the adoption of modern technologies, acquisition or improvement of competencies and new technologies at all levels, new tools and methods for uh, the knowledge-based development of growth, fostering technology-based economy, uh, bridging the gender gap in science and technology, and promoting sustainable natural resource management and environmental governance. Uh, Professor Kumar's research uh, over the years has focused on enzymology, population and molecular genetics, and molecular pathology, uh, with a specific interest in searching at the molecular basis for all sorts of inherited diseases in Pakistani populations. Uh, Professor Kumar obtained his uh, master's in biochemistry, University of Peshawar, uh, and then he came over uh, after working as a scientific officer at the National Institutes of Health in Islamabad, uh, came to the United States, worked on his PhD here in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, uh, University of North Texas, as well as a research associate at the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine in Fort Worth. Uh, before he joined COMSATS, uh, he worked at uh, uh, the, the AQCon Research Laboratories as both a senior and principal scientific officer. Uh, he was at Oxford working with Dr. Chris uh, Tyler Smith in the Department of Biochemistry, also a research director of uh, Shifa College of Medicine in Pakistan. Uh, a lot to discuss today. Uh, Professor Kumar, thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. Pleasure. It, it's good seeing you. Um, you have a, a fascinating background uh, on all fronts. I, you know, I'd love to, as we typically do on the show, just hand you uh, the, the mic for a few minutes just to, to talk a little bit more about your background, everything from, uh, if you could talk about where you grew up, how you developed your, your initial interest in science, biochemistry, molecular biology, and a bit of your interest in uh, sort of the Pakistani population genetics. I think that'd be a great way to, uh, to start things off. All right, thank you very much. Uh, really a pleasure to be on your show here. Uh, well, uh, I won't say that, you know, I grew up thinking of becoming a scientist or whatever, because that wouldn't be true. I grew up thinking of becoming a general duty pilot in the Pakistan Air Force, you know, uh, be a fighter pilot. That was my big dream, you know. Uh, but uh, after having talked all their examinations, their intelligence test and their uh, aptitude test and all that, 
uh, it turned out that my eyesight was not six by six. <laughs> so that was an instant disqualification for me. <laughs> anyway, so I meandered after that and I didn't really know what to do with my life. You know, uh, in Pakistan at that time and still to some, some extent, uh, there were only two, uh, two fields. One was an engineering, other was, a, uh, was medicine. And I wasn't interested in either one of them. So I got my admission in bachelor's in sciences, studying chemistry, zoology, and uh, uh, botany. And uh, from there, uh, when uh, I, to begin with, I was really not interested in any one of them. But I, in my master's, in my MSc, I got an excellent professor. His name was Masood Afridi. And uh, I always say that till the day I die, I will always remember Masuda Fridi. And that person, he turned my life around completely. He was so encouraging. And this, this example I give to all my uh, teaching uh, faculty also, that one single person can change your life around completely. He was very encouraging in class. And he used to say, he was an organic chemist and you'll be surprised he was teaching us biochemistry <laughs> and he was excellent at, at that. He would get up on the board and start writing the equations and all that. And my job was, he, was, he used to say, Rahil, you have to catch my mistakes. And that was a very uh, loving experience and a unique experience for me that a professor is saying to me, you have to catch my mistakes. And he used to love me answering, uh, you know, asking questions and all that. Usually in Pakistan, the general environment is that if you ask uh, questions to a teacher, unfortunately at that time it was uh, that you were being rude and not that you didn't know anything. So again, the first thing I always uh, tell my students in my classes that there is no stupid question ever. If you don't know anything, you don't know anything and you please go ahead and ask it. And that is a sort of an inhibition in the Pakistani society that because of the respect of the teacher and all that, people are not willing to ask questions and that you have to bring out uh, very much into them. All right, so he got me interested in biochemistry. I, I full credits to him. I, I did not even know what biochemistry and molecular biology was. And then I started working at uh, NIH in Islamabad and uh, I started doing small projects and I figured that I was really not, you know, geared to do research per se, because, you know, uh, education at that time was mostly rote learning and you were not taught critical thinking and still the same in, uh, in our part of the world. So you were not really taught critical thinking and how to, you know, develop projects and all that. So I said, I'm not adequately trained to do this. So I got admission in, uh, it was North Texas State University at that time. Later it changed its name to University of North Texas in Denton. So I got admission there and that was a wonderful experience, I tell you. Uh, the American uh, uh, graduate uh, studies are the best in the world. There is absolutely no doubt about that. I've been to Oxford also, also as a postdoc that you mentioned. Nothing compares to the American graduate, uh, uh, graduate studies. And that is where I developed my uh, critical thinking and that is where I developed on how to do science by not actually uh, actually doing science also, but actually looking at other people's science also. Every single seminar that we used to uh, have at the university, I would go attend that and see how people really do science and then question them also. Why did you not do this? Why did you do that and that? And that gave me a, you know, a really solid background into doing research. Uh, I really wanted to do molecular biology at that time. I've always been interested in genetics and all that. But uh, 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 unfortunately, the professor 
who was uh, the molecular biologist uh, at uh, University of North Texas. He was notorious for keeping the students too long. Like one of our previous colleagues, he was there with him for nine years. And I said, I don't have that kind of time, you know. <laughs> and not nine years I can't spend. So I ended up with an enzymologist. And that was a very good experience. He was a, a, a tremendous teacher also. His name was Paul Cook, Paul Fabian Cook. Uh, he has retired now and uh, living in the Denton area. But he was an excellent person. He gave me full, full freedom on how I wanted to do my project and what I want, what experiments I wanted to do. Full freedom. He would not even ask me for months, you know, what you are doing, what you are not doing. In lab group meetings, I would present my data and he was always very encouraging. And so from there, I became an enzymologist. But when I went back to Pakistan, you know, nobody knew about enzymology and enzyme kinetics. Uh, I'm basically an enzyme kineticist. So nobody knew about that at all. And people were asking me questions like, you know, so, okay, you did your PhD in enzyme kinetics. What good is that for Pakistan? <laughs> so I started thinking, you know, okay, what, what do I do? And uh, my passion was always, like I said, you know, molecular biology. So I ended up this, uh, at this lab uh, of uh, AQ Khan Research Lab. It was a biomedical and genetic engineering lab. And uh, uh, the prof uh, professor over there asked me, he was uh, uh, from Stanford also, but he was a Pakistani who had uh, worked at Stanford. He asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I, I want to do some genomics and genetics work. He said, okay, what about population genetics? I said, yes, absolutely. I'm very much interested in that. So I started working on population genetics of Pakistan and uh, we did a lot of work uh, in collaboration with Oxford University and I spent a lot of time over there I also uh, working on uh, uh, genetics of Pakistani populations, different populations. You, you know, Pakistan is a sort of a collection of a number of different uh, ethnicities and a number of different uh, languages and all that. So to dissect that, you know, it was uh, not an easy task, but uh, we ended up with very, very interesting results and all that. All right, so uh, that was my publishing genetics experience. Then I ended up at Shifa College of Medicine. Uh, I was teaching, uh, uh, you know, biochemistry and molecular biology over there. And uh, they wanted me to set up a PCR diagnostic lab. So I set, set that up before they were, the Shifa Hospital, which was, you know, affiliated with the college, was not doing any uh, molecular diagnostic work. So I set up, you know, the regular hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV and SARS and so on and so forth, diagnostic using PCR technology. And then they made me research director also. So I was looking after the whole of research over there. Uh, but unfortunately, Shifa College of Medicine was a private medical college. And uh, I wrote an excellent grant and to the government of Pakistan and it got very, it got approved and all that also. But when they figured out that I was at a private institution, they said, you know, government funds can't go to the private institution. Mm. <laughs> so that was unfortunate. Otherwise, uh, I would have stuck around with Shifa College of Medicine, an excellent place to work with. And all the doctors over there, they were either from, either had background experience in US or UK. So excellent environment to work over there. But unfortunately, uh, you know, I couldn't get funding from the government. So I decided to move on again. And uh, I was appointed at Comset uh, University. At that time, it was called Comset Institute of Information Technology. Okay. And uh, there, uh, I started off as a, as a full professor. And in fact, I was the first professor and the first faculty member to secure tenure at Comset also. Uh, tenure track was a new experience that Pakistan was going, uh, uh, going at uh, around 2005. 
and uh, that is the time that I joined also, and I was the first one to secure tenure there. And there, uh, I started off as professor. Then they gave me the chairmanship of the department immediately after I had joined. And then they made me dean of sciences. They made me uh, dean of uh, research, innovation, and commercialization. And finally, from there, because I was the senior-most professor, when the previous uh, professor, uh, previous rector retired, uh, retired, they gave me the charge of uh, rector concert. And that was a wonderful experience. I got to do so many things in education and research and uh, in innovation and uh, in patents and all that. Okay, so from there, uh, once my tenure ended and the uh, uh, new chap came in to hold the office, uh, I was offered a position here in Rabat by SSCO and I joined here. Uh, my research in uh, concept, uh, because you know, by that time, uh, I'm talking about 2005, 2006, mm -hmm. publishing genetics had become very expensive to do. So it was not possible to do that anymore. So I switched fields again. I started doing disease genetics. And now we are the leading group in Pakistan working on uh, the genomics of eye. We call it ophthalmogenomics. So we are the leading group in Pakistan working on that. And we, we have dwelled in you know, heart diseases also. We've dwelled in uh, intellectual disability and uh, a number of uh, uh, bladder cancer, urinary bladder cancer and so on and so forth, but mostly concentrating around genomics. And then again, you know, I said, you know, let's do some work on nano, nanobiotechnology. And we developed this uh, microfluidic device with one of my colleagues in the physics department uh, where we use you know, different uh, chemicals and now we've modified it used to quantum dots for uh, binding to uh, you know, uh, pharmaceutics of interest like digoxygen. Uh, the idea behind it being that we wanted to develop a point of care device uh, which could sit on the desk of the doctor and he could immediately titer digoxygen or any, any other pharmaceutical uh, that he was interested in. Immediately titer and see what the levels were. As you know very well, you know, digoxygen levels are very critical in patients. Sure. So we developed this device and all that and then uh, that's pretty much it. That's my history <laughs> of uh, research and my personal life. Uh, we've, my father was in survey of Pakistan, so we've lived all over, all over Pakistan. Uh, we've lived in Bangladesh also. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, it was East Pakistan in Dhaka. That is where I grew up, picked up uh, quite a bit of Bengali at that time, <laughs> which now I've forgotten. And then all over basically Pakistan. And then my father moved to Saudi Arabia, so uh, we went with him. He was in the Ministry of Petroleum there, and I studied in a Pakistani international school there and came back to Pakistan after my matriculation, which is the 10th grade, to study further. So that's pretty much it. Uh, no, it's a, it's, it's, a great, it's a great story. It's, uh, it's a world traveler uh, who has been involved in research and in innovation in, uh, in um, scientific development uh, for society. It, it's, a, it's been a really fascinating bit just, just watching this. Um, and we're going to you know, delve into <clears throat> some of these independently. Uh, one of the places I wanted to uh, start off next or go next because I know that you you're extremely passionate about this and we, we exchanged some information offline is your uh, your passion towards sort of the future of both education and research because aside from all of these uh, disruptive technologies and so forth that, that you're working on the lab uh, we have all these disruptive technologies that uh, that impact how 
you teach uh, and and students learn. I joke, you know, I was joking with my kids before. I, I always talk about who I'm talking with, and you know, I say, well, you know, you could probably use technologies today and converse with uh, Professor Kadir in in in, in Urdu uh, in, in a matter of <laughs> in days. Uh, no, not probably me because I'm from the older school. But talk a little bit about some of what you're looking at, some of what your thoughts are in terms of these disruptive technologies, in terms of teaching, and where we're going in 2021. Uh, and, and beyond. All right. So uh, really, you know, I'm very passionate about uh, uh, education and all that. And uh, I feel very strongly that uh, we are educating our next generation very incorrectly. You know, we are still using the uh, industry version for 3.0 technology where a classroom is sitting in, uh, you know, a sort of a, a industrial setup and you del deliver a monologue, which is known as a lecture, and then there's mm -hmm. some question answers and all that. that. That is really not effective teaching at all. You really don't get uh, your message across very, uh, you know, effectively in that sort of a mode. Uh, but of course you can try small group teaching and you can, you know, do uh, uh, sort of interactive teaching and all that, that sort of improves uh, your teaching uh, methodology. But really, is that still an ideal way of doing because See, uh, you know, not everybody in the class is at the same learning pace. Some people learn very slowly and then they absorb, you know, facts and all that very slowly. And some learn very fast and uh, proceed to, to the end of the class. I remember, still remember in my, in my uh, medical college teaching, uh, the smart kids used to sit in the front. And, uh, you know, I had to take, uh, it was a hundred class, a uh, hundred odd individual students class. So you have to take everybody along. And sometimes you have to be repetitive so that the facts and things sink into the students who are really, you know, slow learners and all that. And the front row used to get agitated when I used to repeat myself or, you know, I used to go back to facts in my previous lecture and all that. They would say, come on, come on. And, and I understand where they were coming from, you know, because they already know all those facts, but I have to take the whole class from, along. And, and so I, that is what I mean, you know, that is sort of a lecture, sort of a mode is not an ideal mode of teaching. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, five, six years back uh, at that time, you know, the pandemic was not there and all that. And I started talking to the Higher Education Commission, who's the regulator of Pakistan, <clears throat> that we really need to move into digital technologies and start using technologies and everything. And people, you um, and and I used to say very foolishly, you know, that uh, the future of uh, education is where uh, you know we won't see teachers al uh, around any longer, mm. and uh, you know, artificial intelligence and other things can do a better job at teaching. And that used to rile people up a lot, <laughs> and they used to say, "No, no, 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 that's not, never going to happen," and everything. So uh, then I said to uh, the Higher Education Commission, "Let me experiment with uh, you know some uh, course material." And I created a, an online flipped classroom mode of teaching. You, you're familiar with the flipped classroom. We created an online mode where uh, we recorded all our top professors and uh, the students would uh, you know, listen to it. This is like five, six years back that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Students would listen to it and then they would come together in a virtual classroom and then interact with each other uh, uh, and you know, re resolve their uh, queries that they had. And, and initially, after a semester of uh, doing that, there was a lot of hue and cry because this was a new mode of doing things and students were really, you know, uh, really agitated. But then they settled into it and it worked very well. 
And what we did, we integrated it with the social media. You can still find most of the lectures on YouTube also. So if you want to listen to it, you can switch on the translation vector and listen to it in Dari or in any language that you want to. So th that was an experiment uh, that really worked very well for us. And when the pandemic set in last year, all the universities in Pakistan unprepared for it. Uh, and we were really prepared and we quickly switched over all our courses to online flipped classroom mode. And that was very easy for us to do because we had a lot of experience in doing that. Now that made me thinking that, you know, that, okay, online teacher thinking, you know, teacher teaching and all that, that, that's a good model also, but really, you know, we need to use more technology to teach. And again, uh, I, I sort of believe in, you know, that there should not be a generalized curriculum for everybody. Mm -hmm. There should be specialized, personalized curriculum for people. You know, you might have a different knowledge set. I might have a different knowledge set. If you want to gain anything, it should be personalized and driven towards me. And that cannot happen in a normal classroom setting. <clears throat> so we developed this algorithm for an artificial intelligence platform. Uh, I call it a tree-based learning system. Mm -hmm. And what it does is that people who are slow learners, it takes them through facts very, you know, very slowly and lets them absorb the fact and all that. And people who are fast learner, they climb to the top of the tree very quickly. And that algorithm we developed in, in Pakistan. And uh, then I, had, I was going to start uh, coding it, uh, have it coded and all that. But by that time, my tenure was finished. And I think that project is uh, not going anywhere from there onward. So I, I, I think, I personally think, you know, uh, uh, the brick and mortar universities, and again, people used to laugh at me when I used to say this, that the brick and mortar universities are not going to exist in the future. And people are going to be, you know, teaching and learning more online and more individualized uh, uh, things and all that. And it's going to be all about skill sets. Why do we, you know, need to learn facts? Uh, one of the most, uh, you know, uh, my professor Paul Cook used to say that was the most stupid thing I've ever <laughs> heard anybody do was uh, I was asked uh, in one of my interviews in my bachelor's uh, that, you know, from the periodic table, tell us the lanthanide series, tell us the actinide series, right. like this and that. And I was like, why? I don't remember those, you know, who would remember <laughs> those? And uh, after that, I was so, you know, uh, so sort of disheartened. And I said, I'm never going to get stuck in this. So I memorized the whole of the periodic table. And when I told Paul about it, he said, oh, that is the most stupid thing I've ever heard anybody do. Why would you need to do that? Just pick up the periodic table and look at the information you want to. <laughs> and, and now with, you know, the uh, Google and everything on your hands, you don't need to remember mm -hmm. facts at all. You can instantaneously, you know, uh, come up with any facts or, or whatever. So what you need to do is you need to have skill sets in how to extract those facts and how to really make sense out of it and all, all these sort of things and have empathy and you know, all those skill sets where you can work in groups and all that. I'm sure you know the industry 4.0 version skill sets and everything. So that is what is needed. And that you cannot teach in a classroom, unfortunately at all. I think the future of education is definitely AI driven and individualized. And people used to say that, you know, oh, you know, there's, uh, one has to have uh, mentorship and all that. And I said, yes, of course you have to have mentorship. You remember the way research used to be done in the older days that Leonardo da Vinci or whatever, he used to have mentees and he used to do individualized teaching with everybody. And that is where we're going back to. 
from there we progressed to a classroom teaching which is the most uh, stupidest uh, mode of teaching and i think we need to go back to that uh, mentee and mentor relationship and that you can only achieve uh, you know uh, uh, with artificial intelligence why not have a hologram i experimented with hologramic holographic teaching in uh, in my university also so we, we because my university is very big it has seven campuses spread all over the northern pakistan Mm-hmm. and so we were beaming you know in a holographic form lectures from one one uh, uh, one classroom to another like 4 500 uh, kilometers away and that was a good experiment also but the, obviously that has stopped also once i left so you know again uh, doing that sort of thing i uh, uh, we figured that you know if a hologram uh, a man hologram or a teacher hologram it works why not use a you know artificial intelligence based hologram to uh, do the same sort of a job and i i think I, my personal opinion is i believe very strongly that that is what is going to be happening in the future the teacher artificial intelligence based teacher is going to project into your uh, in your homes and teach you all that you need to know over there so that that is my idea about teaching uh, i have crazy ideas about research also <laughs> i think we do very you know uh, research very uh, wastefully so mm. anyway over to you <laughs> no i, I it, it's fascinating and i as a side uh, joke i i did notice those really smart kids 30 years ago in the front row and i thought you know if i could just sit in the front row I'll become one of those really smart kids but it it didn't work that way but anyway <laughs> uh, but but let's continue along this because um now moving to the research I did and and we'll we'll um uh we'll get to ICESCO in a little bit but I I want to uh, talk a little bit more about Comsat especially for sort of the US audience that may be less familiar and I I thought about it actually before we even talked it mainly as a Pakistani organization but I realized there are, there are quite a few uh 27 uh, different member states it spans africa asia latin america so here uh, uh it's jamaica and colombia are involved and many countries in africa middle east china uh talk a little bit because you've been obviously not just successful with with the research in these models education but uh in uh technology transfer you know you talked about your microfluidics device um talk a little bit about uh the ecosystem sort of the innovation ecosystem outside of comsat in pakistan and in some of these other countries that you work right. with and also um basically uh how you see the uh, ecosystem developing in this model okay all right uh, comsat uh, our head, we call it headquarter comsat was an idea of our uh, only nobel laureate well in sciences at least abdul salam professor abdul salam uh who was a physicist and all that and his idea was that you know there's a lot of uh, north south cooperation and all that but when you see at the countries of the south they are mostly underdeveloped and there is no south south cooperation so that is where he came up with this idea of forming a commission which would concentrate more on south south cooperation and if you see uh, uh, you mentioned our member states also uh, they are mostly uh, located in the south and they are mostly impoverished and they mostly Uh, are uh, you know very backward uh, uh, excuse the, the use of the word in science and technology and education and so on and so forth so th- that is where the idea was born and uh, comsat uh, institute of information technology as, at that time was sort of a formed uh, uh, was a center of excellence which was formed uh, in pakistan with, with the help of the government of pakistan 
and then it became completely independent from Comset headquarters. So we are an entity which is independent of uh, Comset headquarters. And we concentrated on research and development and uh, uh, education and all that. So uh, when I took over as Dean of Science uh, and uh, ultimately Dean of Research Innovation Commercialization, I used to say to people, that, look here, you know, we are really not producing the research level that we should be producing. Uh, there, there was a, a sort of a revolution which happened in higher education in Pakistan, and that was in uh, General Musharraf's uh, era when he appointed Professor Atar Rahman, a very well-renowned professor, as the uh, chairman of Higher Education Commission. And he practically transformed the higher education in Pakistan and the research environment. Let me tell you this, in the year that uh, HEC was formed, I think it was the year 2002, the whole of Pakistan was producing only 855 publications in impact factor journals. Can you imagine the whole of Pakistan, only 855, which any small college in the US uh, would, be, uh, would be doing. So he transformed that completely and he put in a lot of money into education and research and all that. And that was one of the major reasons I had moved from Shipa College to Concert also. And uh, uh, so I used to say to my faculty, look here, you know, without research, we can't do anything. When I took over as Dean of Sciences, we were publishing uh, 255 uh, journal papers. So we started giving incentives. We started giving, you know, uh, sort of uh, funding their research. And we started giving them money uh, to publish in open source journals and everything. And by the, uh, by the end of that, uh, what happened is we became number one in Pakistan as far as publications is concerned. Uh, we first crossed, we were the first university to cross 1500 impact factor journal publications in a year. Mm. I think it was year 2017. And in 18, we crossed 2000, then 2500. And then uh, we crossed 3000. And we are the most uh, research producing university in Pakistan. Uh, we produce almost uh, now 25% uh, uh, of the research coming out of Pakistan. And uh, the overall scenario of research also changed uh, in Pakistan when so much funds were put in. And in the year, uh, the last analysis I did was year 2019, Pakistan had uh, published 20,000 publications at that time. <clears throat> and India, although India at that time published uh, 90,000 or whatever, whatever so I did this brief analysis of per capita publication and we had crossed India in the year 2017, I think. So we had crossed per capita, not, not absolute number, per capita publication, we had crossed them uh, at that time. So uh, that, that, that is the sort of thing uh, that needed to be developed in Pakistan a lot because uh, there was no manpower, you know, there was just 2,000, 3,000 PhD faculty member. And Professor Atta, he sent a lot of people to US, to Europe and other places for, uh, uh, for PhD, our faculty development program was one of the largest uh, in, uh, in, in the world at that time with Fulbright and with uh, other, other people also. With Fulbright, we are still running the largest uh, faculty development program, uh, sending students to US and all that. So uh, it really changed the environment of research. So when we saw that you know, we were doing well in research and everything, then I said, you know, uh, research per se is, uh, you know, not enough. What do we need to do? We need to move on from there. If, uh, and uh, also funders started asking, you know, uh, one chairman of uh, higher education commission, he, he asked me point blank, Rahil, you published 150 impact factor journal papers. 
what good is that to the society? <laughs> so, so people started asking that question also. So we, I, th- I said, you know, enough basic research. We continue with that. We now need to move to applied research. So we, we started re-educating our professors. And that was one of the hardest thing I ever did in my life, re-educating professor on how to do applied research. People were so stuck in what they were good at and what they were uh, doing, doing uh, that they would not move on to you know, uh, applied research. And uh, of course, you know, when you talk to me also about uh, you know, doing research for uh, money or whatever, our minds close up because we are you know, sort of from the old school, we don't believe in you know, making money off our research. <laughs> So anyway, so we started developing the skill sets of uh, individuals on how to set up your businesses, how to handle the legal frameworks and how to, you know, apply for IP, how to write patents, how to identify what is patentable and everything. Took me five years of training. But ultimately, uh, the end result of that was that we set up an incubator in in Islamabad in one of my campuses. And that incubator uh, uh, till last year had graduated 45 startups uh, from that incubator. And 27, I think, startups were still working on there, uh, in there. And interestingly, we moved uh, to a pre-startup also from there. And that, that, has, that has about 97 odd uh, pre-startup companies in there. Mm-hmm. And we started filing patents in US. And we currently, uh, again, you know, my data is a bit old, but we had about uh, 50 odd US patents and then Pakistani patents and UK patents and all that. So then we said, you know, uh, and these companies that uh, are working in the in the market right now, they their reported annual uh, turnover, financial turnover is half a billion rupees, mm. which I think is uh, two to three million US dollars. Mm. And these are companies found by the students, not by, you know, uh, high-profile researchers or whatever. Of course, in, in under supervision with some professors and all sure. that, but mostly they are student-owned companies. So uh, they started doing very well. And then I said, you know, okay, we are doing a lot of research and how do we now move towards the commercialization phase? And, uh, oh God, that is very difficult in Pakistan. So we had a couple of different projects, uh, you know, products on which we had IP. We had one product, uh, which uh, uh, sort of accelerates wound healing. I know that you are a pharmacist, so I'll tell you what it is. What we found is we found some of the deoxy sugars to accelerate wound healing in deep cuts and diabetic uh, diabetic patients. Okay. And we hold an uh, IP on that, a US patent and a, and a British patent also on that. So we said, you know, why not use this product in uh, bandages? So we adapted it and embedded it into bandages. So you can, you know, peel off and put a bandage on burn victims and you can put, mm-hmm. put, uh, put a bandage on uh, deep cuts and all that. And that would, you know, heal it very quickly. So I started looking around for this pro- uh, product to commercialize it in Pakistan. Uh, nobody was interested because it involved, you know, setting up a factory. And that, that cost at that time was about 5 billion rupees. And nobody was interested in that. Mm. So then we approached, uh, we had a partner in uh, UK also, the Sheffield University was partners on us with, uh, with us. We approached uh, uh, Australian company uh, uh, and uh, they, they were very much interested. And they said, we'll set up the factory and they're in phase three trials of uh, the bandage right now. And uh, they are going to be market, marketing it uh, throughout uh, Southeast Asia. And uh, we hope to move to uh, Europe also. And uh, then... Um, some of the other products uh, that we developed in the same lab, it is called the uh, uh, interdisciplinary research lab in biomedical material and a lot of good work we are doing over there. 
This is located in our Lahore campus, and it's under the supervision mm -hmm. of Professor Itishamur Rahman. He is an expat Pakistani living in uh, UK. He works at Lancaster University, and he is the soul behind this uh, uh, behind this uh, uh, unit. And uh, I believe very strongly that uh, expats who are living in US and UK and all that, they can make a very positive contribution, just like Professor Atishamur uh, Rahman has done by giving back to the country and setting up such uh, units. And we, uh, we developed then the, this lab also developed uh, uh, artificial skin. Uh, we imported, uh, we were importing, I think from US or Europe, I forget for uh, an artificial skin of a four by four centimeter patch of about 750 US dollars. Mm. And for a burn victim, you know very well, you know how much uh, product is sure. needed. And that was really not feasible. So we developed our own artificial skin and we embedded the deoxy sugar in that also to accelerate it uh, in uh, wood healing. And that cost us, uh, you know, you won't believe how much it cost us. Can you take a wild guess how much it cost us? You cost, or, or what you're, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to guess in, in single digits, but dollars, but go ahead. <laughs> 7.5 US dollar for 4.5, which we were buying for right. 750 US dollars. <laughs> right. So now we are going to move that, that to commercialization also. Now Pakistani companies have started seeing uh, the benefits of uh, things. And they are now coming in with us as partners and all that. So that, that is where, you know, uh, what is needed in our part of the world. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but uh, Pakistan uh, is currently uh, provides one of the largest, you know, uh, what do you call them, uh, individuals or whatever, who do a lot of uh, IT related work uh, mm -hmm. uh, from US and from Europe and all that. We are the fastest growing uh, uh, you know, in that uh, area. And in fact, uh, uh, a couple of years back, it was reported that the business that we were conducting was close to 2 billion. But then we started looking at the numbers. We were, the business we are really conducting at that time was close to 8 billion. Hmm. So we, uh, I started saying, you know, where is the other money going? And you know what? I talked to my, uh, my students and all that. They said, if we bring that money to Pakistan, we have to pay a lot of taxation. Uh -huh. And everyone starts asking where the money is coming from. And, you know, there's all this war on terror and all this also. So people start questioning where the funds are coming from. So we are parking all the money in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and those places. So unfortunately, then I, uh, then I was appointed uh, on the PM task force for, uh, you know, uh, science and technology and, uh, you know, trying to take that forward also. And I suggested over there that we need to modify our government policies. And the government has really worked on that now. They are going to completely change the policy so that people can easily bring back money into the country and really not be penalized for bringing so much capital into the country. Sure. And I'm sure, you know, by, by this time, they've already crossed 10, 10 billion US dollars uh, business. And uh, that can make a lot of, uh, you know, contribution. And now the younger generation has started understanding I always kid with one of my researchers who developed this deoxy uh, sugar, that his name is uh, Dr. Yar Mahmud. That Yar, I want to see you driving, not a BMW, but a Mercedes. <laughs> I love Mercedes. I want to see you driving that, you know. So uh, that, that I think is really the future, trying to develop this ecosystem. And at ISESCO also, uh, we are trying to develop that ecosystem in the Muslim countries. We are starting, uh, uh, we are going to kickstart uh, next, uh, in June, in fact, uh, an ISESCO accelerator 
where we will bring uh, in you know these uh, startups and people who have ideas we will bring them into a boot camp mm-hmm. uh, for a few days and teach them how to do it and uh, then develop their ideas into a product in the accelerator which we will give them for you know four five uh, weeks to develop that idea and then take that to commercialization phase and everything whatever products we are able to develop uh, without innovation you know there there is no future of uh, you know countries like uh, us uh, i always say that you know uh, countries who would be creating knowledge and who would be you know uh, involved in knowledge economy would be would fare well in the future and countries who do not uh, do that would be thrown back into the stone ages so we really it is imperative for us to develop innovation and innovative thinking and critical thinking and all those and unfortunately in our part of the world uh, critical thinking is never taught and uh, i'm sad to say this but also happy to say this that i learned all these things in the us uh, and uh, it's a great contribution of the us education system that uh, you know people like me uh, who uh, had a passion for these things were really my professor always used to say oh rahil you are the best and this and that used to hug me and all that <laughs> i used to say professor no i'm not <laughs> please don't don't be that <laughs> don't go to that uh, heights you know i i'm okay you know but uh, i did well in my studies over there i graduated with a 3.93 cgpa also so i did well in my studies and that was just because in the exam also it was all about critical thinking you know, how you could think and sit in the exam and think critically and come up with an answer and not rote learning uh, i have a weak memory i can't do rote learning i hate rote learning but i have good analytical skills and uh, critical thinking skills and that were really developed in the us i think yeah absolutely yeah i, I love hearing uh, the stories of the translation <laughs> it's, it's it's very exciting uh, um yeah i i want to um you know we we've, we've now gone from Pakistan to the US to Oxford to Pakistan and now we're going to fly to Morocco uh where you are now uh you are heading up the uh, science and technology uh, directorate at at ISESCO and and you you have a, an, again a broad purview here uh broadening the engagement of artificial intelligence and digital technologies for society's development obviously a major passion of yours uh, also eco innovation for climate change and natural resource management and then another interesting basket innovative cultures and religions programs for environmental action uh once again for those listening icesco central islamic world education scientific and cultural organization uh professor take us a little bit on your uh, your current uh, programs what you're doing here how you enjoy living in morocco <laughs> um t- take us on a little bit if you would all right so uh, i've been here about 7 uh, or 8 months now so uh, before i came here you know we were doing things uh, in the old traditional ways and all that and, and i said you know this is not going to cut it by the way morocco is the most beautiful country i've ever been to the beaches here are fantastic and you know it has a long coastline every day you get to see a new beach and really beautiful places and and dirt cheap really dirt cheap it is the ideal tourist location really and people are very kind and very very nice people over here they're always very helpful i i had a flat once uh, on a side road uh, and uh, every single person who passed me by they were stopping and they were saying how can we help how can we help you know and one person he forced food on to me oh no we don't know how long you're going to be stuck here so he gave me bread he gave me fruits and all that please take this please take this i was like so embarrassed but that's the sort of people these people are 
anyway, so when I came here, you know, we were doing traditional things like uh, doing workshops and capacity buildings and all that. And our new director general, he is uh, uh, a believer in uh, really uh, stirring things up and trying to change the way things are done. He does not believe in the old ways of teaching and all the learning and everything. So we started doing some uh, different things. And uh, one of the things that I just talked about is the, this accelerator program that we are going to be launching in June. And we worked a lot on that and uh, eco-innovation. Uh, see, uh, the problem with the, uh, the uh, again, I will say it, our part of the world is, the uh, impoverished world is that even when a small disaster happens, you know, uh, it becomes a big uh, casualty because we are really not handled used to handling disasters and we don't have the systems and we don't have the capacities to do that. So one of the first programs we started was disaster risk management and disaster risk reduction. And this we are doing with Sultan Qaboos University in, uh, in Oman and uh, Naif University in Saudi Arabia. And we are developing a comprehensive program where we will uh, you know, ensure first of all uh, to provide guidelines to countries to how to reduce their, uh, uh, you know, disaster risk, mm -hmm. and then how to, you know, handle it after, after the fact, uh, using satellite technologies and imaging and all that. So that, <clears throat> that is sort of what we are doing on that. Then eco-innovation, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, uh, in uh, impoverished nations, uh, when you have uh, problems of even, uh, you know, not being sure where your next meal is going to be coming, coming from, you really don't care for the environment any longer. And you uh, sort of try to use it for your benefit, cutting down trees and mm -hmm. you know, burning it for fuel or whatever, and whatever not. So I think that's a very important uh, area that we can contribute significantly into. And we are starting a program of uh, green cities and we've already, uh, uh, Agdam and uh, uh, a couple of cities in uh, 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 Kazakhstan, we, we have labeled them as the green cities. Mm. And from there now we, with Azerbaijan, we are moving to green and smart cities. We are developing this concept and we are holding the first uh, uh, conference in Agadir for that. And we want, uh, you know, not just uh, uh, smart cities of the future, we want sustainable cities of the future. So we, we are trying to develop that concept and see how we can move towards that. And uh, <clears throat> then with US, uh, with the Space Foundation, we are developing a, a, a sort of a training program for our, uh, our students. Uh, again, you know, space, uh, uh, I say space, uh, you remember Star Trek, you know, space, the final frontier, I say Absolutely. space, the final uh, job creator and space is going to really uh, have, you know, you would need an ecosystem to support all your space endeavors, be it travel or be it rocketry or be it, be it whatever. You need a whole ecosystem to be developed and the US has done a wonderful job in developing that e ecosystem. But when we look in our part of the world, we don't see that ecosystem existing at all. So Space Foundation has agreed uh, uh, to sort of help us in developing that ecosystem in our, in our parts of the world also. And then one of the major things that we found was uh, human capital was very lacking in third world countries. So we developed a very strong scholarship program with Leibniz Institute. Leibniz Institution in Germany is a conglomerate of about 94 odd institutions and they are you know really big and they have uh, offered us scholarships to take students from uh, from here 
uh, not just Morocco, but the whole of uh, uh, the member states into Germany for training purposes and all that. And uh, one thing I told them that, you know, uh, from my past experience and all that, I said, you know, this uh, complete PhD will not work in our, in our, in our, uh, in our part of the world. I keep saying our part of the world, our part of the world. <laughs> I said, of course. <laughs> so uh, this, this is not going to work. So what, what uh, you know, uh, I told you that when I went back to Pakistan, they said, enzyme kinetics, what is that? Why, why is that important for us? So I said, what we need to do is we need to have a sort of a split PhD. The student starts his research in his country, in his university on a problem which is related to the country. Then he goes for a year, to Leibniz or to any other place, and he develops that, uh, you know, he finishes that project and he wraps it up and then comes back to the country and, uh, you know, then uh, uh, then sort of sets up, uh, moves on uh, to his defense and everything. And that, uh, I think, would be a much better model than a complete PhD uh, done in uh, Germany or done in US or whatever. And uh, Leibniz Institution, in fact, they went a step further. They said, okay, once you have a critical mass of these individuals, we would be happy to, you know, set up sort of a, this was my idea also that why not we set up satellite units in, in these countries. And they said we would be happy to do that uh, with the, uh, asking the German government for funding also and trying to set up these units. And the first, uh, uh, the MOU we signed was, uh, uh, I think a couple of days back, was with LeCAT. And LeCAT, uh, works on catalysis, industrial catalysis, and mm. I think that is very much needed. So they will train our scientists on how to work on industrial problems and then go back to, to their countries and solve industrial problems and all that. And from there, we will move into different areas. Now we are planning on other, others also. So uh, these are the sort of, you know, he, trying to develop human capital, trying to move towards innovative technologies, trying to move towards artificial intelligence and its uses and uh, uh, also modifying education and uh, culture. We, uh, we believe very strongly that, uh, you know, all religions and everything is, uh, you know, uh, th this is my area also, population genetic, <laughs> that all humanity on earth, uh, we came from this Great Lakes region and from a single uh, mother for sure, because if you look at the mitochondrial genome, sure. every single individual who has been tested, they all trace back their lineage to a single person. My work was mostly on Y chromosome also, and we were trying to do the same sort of uh, thing, uh, trying to trace it, trace it back to the biological Eve and to the biological mm -hmm. Adam also. And so uh, we are all descended from a single person and a single uh, single lady, uh, whatever the factor, you know, whatever the religious connotations or whatever, sure. I'm not going to go into that. But the scientific fact is from a single mother for sure. So we are all brothers and sisters on this planet, and I don't really understand, you know, why then we are at each other's throats all the time and trying to kill off each other or whatever, okay? So, uh, you know, uh, where was I? I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, I, I think there's a need to, you know, uh, develop this brotherhood uh, in, the Muslim, uh, in the Muslim nation. So we uh, have drafted this, uh, 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 this saying, which is uh, based, upon, uh, based upon our Prophet Muhammad Sallam's saying that, all people are derived from Adam and Eve, mm -hmm. and nobody has, you know, uh, preference over the other, be it a black man or be it a white man, nobody has preference over each other, be it a 
Jew, be it a Christian, be it a Muslim, all religions are equal also. And of course, we, we are from the Abrahamic religions, uh, the, you know, Judaism and Islam and Christianity. So we are descended from the same sort of uh, prophet also. So we do not differentiate between them. Before we were working mostly with the member state, but now we've opened up our doors to work with the West and uh, with other, other religions and other cultures also. And one of the things we are doing is, uh, uh, you, you remember a while back, there was a war fought between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Mm-hmm. And a uh, lot of the areas uh, which were occupied, uh, which belonged to Azerbaijan, uh, we had the, uh, uh, you know, uh, we visited them uh, three, four months back, and we saw a lot of devastation over there. Mm-hmm. You know, churches destroyed, mosques destroyed, and uh, completely houses uh, uh, leveled to the ground. So we said we will support the development uh, and the reconstruction of one church over there and one, uh, one mosque over there. So uh, we want to bring uh, together people rather than create divisions among religions and among, among nations and all that. So that is the sort of thing uh, that we are now trying to develop to develop cohesion and to develop, you know, intercultural harmony uh, between uh, different nations. Uh, because like I said, you know, you and I and everybody else is brothers uh, uh, and we are all descendants of uh, people from Africa, the African nation. So why, why should brothers and sisters uh, be cutting each other's throats? I realize, you know, there are a lot of extremists and uh, we face uh, that lot in Pakistan also. We, uh, in the war on terror, we, uh, Pakistan, we were the one who suffered the most. We lost more than 80,000 individuals to bombings and all that. But now we have controlled them completely. Our army has done a wonderful job. They've eliminated all the terrorists from Pakistan and there's no terrorism any longer. And I would really encourage you uh, to you also go visit Pakistan. Northern areas of Pakistan are beautiful. You will not find such an uh, area anywhere in the world. You know, <laughs> is that a travel book for Pakistan? Uh, that's a little travel. I have a. It's just funny. You mentioned I have a little set of play, uh, of travel books of places I've not yet been, but I've collected. Uh, and, and they see the problem. These kids came along, uh, and, and they they stopped me from traveling. So uh, anyway, we'll get. I'll get places. <laughs> anyway, the northern areas are really beautiful. You know, the Dosai Plains and all these mountains. The K two, which is the second highest peak in the world. Oh, they're amazing. The lakes over there, the crystal clear lakes and beautiful areas to visit. Uh, I really love that. I, some people say that that's the Switzerland of Pakistan. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so we are trying to develop our tourism also now, showing people that, you know, uh, all these uh, uh, negative elements have been eliminated from the country and uh, it's safe to visit the, the country now. So, oh, okay. So, uh, I guess that's pretty much it. Uh, unless you want to, you know, ask something else or whatever. Yeah, no, I, I, it's 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 fascinating message. Uh, it's it's a, uh, a an elegant message uh, and and something that uh, everybody needs to hear of, of of all cultures, all countries. Um, the only the only other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, I, I realize you have a lot going on. Um, I, I just wanted to come back to you now and give you the mic uh, just to, to take us out. But you know, early on when you're talking about your um, your early biochemistry experience. You, you pr- mentioned a professor Masood Afridi as a, a major mentor uh, early on. Uh, take a couple of minutes, just if you would uh, mention any uh, anyone else you want to mentors, influencers that have been really instrumental on keeping Professor Rahil Kumar on this path. Uh, who, if it wasn't for them, you you know you'd be off uh, 
practicing law or doing something <laughs> totally different. Or oh, or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, of course, you know, Masood Afridi was one of the major influences of my life and he completely, uh, you know, at that time what had happened to me that I got disillusioned with life, unfortunately, because I couldn't become the fighter pilot that I wanted to all my life. I sort of become disillusioned with life and I stopped studying and everything. And I started doing poorly in my life. And he is the person who provided me that support that I needed in my life. My father was in, my parents, both my parents and my brother were there. They were in Saudi Arabia. I was all alone in Pakistan living with my grandparents. And uh, I really needed that sort of support. He encouraged me to turn my life around. He was always, Rahil, you have so much potential in you. You have so much potential in you. What are you doing with your life? And he really encouraged me to turn it around. And I owe my completely, what I, what I am today, I owe it to him. Uh, he died last year, and that was a very sad occasion for me. But I got to see him before his death. So I'm happy that I was able to tell him that uh, you are the chap, uh, whatever I am now, I'm the rector of Comset University, I'm that because of you. And after that, my uh, my PhD supervisor, Paul uh, Fabian Cook, oh, he was such a joyous person to work for. He was a tremendous person to work for. And then I came back to Pakistan and uh, I worked in, uh, like you said, KRL labs. Uh, and from there, I moved to Shapar College of Medicine. And there, the Dean of Medicine, his name was uh, Dr. Amin. Oh, what a what a professional person and what a tremendous person. He had spent most of his life in Canada and he came back to set this medical college in Pakistan based on the lines of uh, Canadian medical colleges. And he was always encouraging and always telling me, Rahil, oh, Rahil, I, I think he was a bit too optimistic. Rahil, you're going to win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> no, Dr. Me, <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> so he was always very encouraging. And, and from there, uh, two people, uh, two more people I would like to mention. One was uh, Dr. Anwar Naseem. Uh, he uh, was in Pakistan Academy of Sciences at that time. I think he was the president or something. And he said to me, Rahil, uh, you know, you, your research career is going to suffer if you stay on at the Shapar College. And he really encouraged me to move on to uh, find a job uh, at Comset. And uh, Professor Mufti, he was the guy who took me to uh, took me to Comset and made me the professor over there, and of course the chair of the department also. And Professor Atar Rahman, my God, this guy has you know single-handedly Professor Atar Rahman and Professor Nakvi, uh, their team. Professor Atar Rahman was the chairman of Higher Education Commission. Professor Nakvi was the executive director of Higher Education Commission. So Professor Atar used to have all these fancy ideas and Professor Nakvi used to operationalize them. Mm. They single-handedly changed research and education in Pakistan completely. And whatever Pakistan is now, or whatever people like me are, we owe it completely to Professor Atar Rahman and Suhail Nakvi. Uh, I think these are the major influences of life. And Professor Ed Southern also, uh, I was in uh, Professor Ed Southern's lab. Uh, he's the famous guy who uh, of Southern blotting. He okay. was the guy who created that. And then the DNA chip also. I was in his lab, but I was under the direct supervision of Chris Tyler Smith. And Chris is a tremendous population geneticist. He really infused that love for population genetics in me also. So these are the major people uh, I would really add the on my deathbed, I would be remembering <laughs> all these people and praying for them. That's right. Outstanding.
Um, Brett, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, journey that you've been on. Uh, really wishing you the best with all of this moving forward. Uh, you have a major portfolio here, and it's uh, it's going to be exciting to continue to watch. And uh, for everybody that is going to be listening to this particular episode on the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, you've been listening to Professor Dr. Rahil Kamar, uh, head of the Directorate of Science and Technology at the Islamic World Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, tenure professor of biochemistry and molecular biology and former rector uh, at Comsats in Pakistan, Islamabad, Pakistan. Uh, professor, I want to take the you know take time to say thank you for for taking the time out of your schedule to come on the show and talk to us. I want to thank you for everything that you, you're doing around the world. And as we say on this show, uh, thank you for helping to create a better tomorrow uh, from what you're doing. It's it's very inspirational. And thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on your show. Thank you. <laughs>